Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Putsara Rang and I grew up in the same western Oregon town. We had the same friends, went to the same school. We were both the devoted, driven, overachieving children of immigrants. When you're a teenager, that's enough to form a friendship. So I never thought I needed to know more about Put and her family. She once talked about how her family had fled Cambodia, but at 16, I did not possess the awareness or courage to ask her what that really meant. What it meant is that in order to raise her family in the placid ease of Corvallis, Oregon, Put's mother had to escape the genocidal killing fields of the Khmer Rouge. That is the story Put and her family carried with them every day, but I never knew it. Meanwhile, it was Put who showed the true journalistic talent. She went from reporting for our high school newspaper, the Crescent Crier, to living and reporting in a dozen countries, including Cambodia, Thailand, and Afghanistan. I'd lost track of her since high school, each of us moving in our own directions, trying to find our own way, until this year, when I opened Put's new memoir, Ma and Me, and read the words, Go in the water, there's the crocodile. Come up on land, there's the tiger. And there it was, that story. Putsada and her mother have carried with them their entire lives. The story that Put is so generously willing to share with us now. Putsada Rang, welcome to On Point. Hello, Meghna. What a joy to be here. I feel like it's been more than 20 years since we've talked. My goodness, it sure has been a minute. 30, I think. 30 years? <laughs> Don't, t- Don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, I... I really mean it when I say that, I don't know, in sort of the blissful ignorance of teenage life in Corvallis, Oregon, I did not know what it meant, what that story that that you and your family carry with you every single day about escaping from Cambodia. And now when I go back and think about it, I think, how bizarre. Was it bizarre? Mm -hmm. Growing, walking around Corvallis with the conifer trees and our delightful little high school in Oregon State <laughs> University and the rain and the flowers every day and thinking, my mother had to flee from a genocide to get here. Sure. Well, in fact, that blissful state that you had talked about, Magna, and described so articulately, I was in it too. I was in it up until the point I turned 16 and went for the first time to Cambodia. So, of course, everything up until that moment I knew about myself was that I was American and that what was in Corvallis and all the beauty that we were surrounded by and and, and beyond the beauty, just the absolute peace of Corvallis. Mm-hmm. I mean, just it's so quiet and, you know, we kind of lux- luxuriate in that 
quietude, I didn't know any other life but that life until I went to Cambodia. And so I was with you um, in this sort of blissful ignorance. And um, in a way, it was making that crossing back to Cambodia as a teenager that sort of broke the spell for me. And I, I understood that there was indeed this other part of me that was not the peaceful bliss that, that, Ke- that Corvallis had represented. Hmm. I mean, we all do carry multitudes within us, don't we? Absolutely. I, I, um, how old were you when you first began to hear or become aware of the story of how your mother and you made it to the United States? I was pretty young. I'm sure I was a I was a kid at Wilson Elementary School uh, there in Corvallis. You know, go Wilson Wildcats. I was trying actually to think of. Um, I, I I can picture the the when I know I was quite young, still in uh, still in grade school. I was actually um, just the other day really trying to to figure out the where, and it, and it would have had to be in one of either two places. In the strawberry fields, and at the time, that would have been Carnegie's Farm in Corvallis. It used to be off of Highway 99 (laughs) there, uh, right off the Willamette Valley, or excuse me, the Willamette River. Or it would have been in in our family room with my mom, competing to tell her stories with uh, the different strokes, you know, on the background. And as kids, you know, wanting to watch our sitcoms, but then also me being absolutely struck by these other stories I was hearing that had nothing to do with what we were seeing on TV, in fact, a completely different world. Um, and so I know I was quite young when I first heard this. I, I, I won't say the whole story, but certainly the stirrings of the story, mm. the basic outline of the story didn't really have all the details. Mm. Well, you tell that story in your memoir, Ma and Me, and I'm wondering if you could actually read a little bit of it um, early on. Uh, in the book, you describe what your mother told you about how your family fled uh, the war, the genocide in in Cambodia on a boat, and you were a tiny baby who nearly died. Can you can you read part of that story to us? I'd love to. I wasn't quite one years old. I, I turned one ha- uh, about ten days into our journey at sea. And this is what my mother told me. They gave me a pouch of IV, but there was no needle. I said, what do I do? My baby is so sick. And they said, open that and feed her with a spoon. I fed you day and night put. You swallowed a little bit at a time. Then the next morning, Sang got a cabbage and a banana. The Thai people gave us food, but wouldn't let us stay in their country. I took a piece of cabbage leaf and gave it to you to hold, and you grasped it. Before then, it's like you were in a coma. Your eyes rolled back in your head. The ivy helped you. I thought, okay, my baby is alive. About two or three days later, you started a small cry again. Your lips and face were so dry. I was thinking, what am I going to do if my baby dies? Where am I going to bury my baby? That's Putsada Rang reading from her memoir, Ma and Me. How close were you to dying, Put? According to my aunts and relatives on the ship, as well as the, um, the captain of the ship who I was able to 
uh, excuse me, the, the second in command of the ship who I was, I was able to interview several years ago, pretty close. Actually, one of my aunts was, was fairly certain that I had already died. And you, you write in the book that I think it's the captain that the writing is so vivid, by the way, the captain in his, like, crisp white uniform and your mother, I mean, because there were hundreds of refugees on the boat, right, uh, right. fleeing, crammed on to the, the, the deck of, of the ship. Uh, and she noted how crisp and white his uniform was, and she was wondering how he could have kept it so clean. But that he told her that if you died in her arms, what would she have to do? She would have to toss me overboard. He was worried that on an overcrowded boat, and his job indeed was to, in part, help ensure that as many of his passengers as possible survived. And to have a corpse of a dead baby on board, he believed would have contaminated everybody else. So in his mind, there was no option other than to have my mother toss me overboard. But she wasn't going to do that. I mean, she wasn't going to let you die, obviously. Um, Let's take a step back here. This was 1975. It was. For people who don't know or recall? Um, It seems a rather obvious question, but we should talk about why so many Cambodians had to flee um, uh, in 1975. Do you want to tell us that? Right. Yeah, thanks for the question, Magna. We we should talk about it, and we have to talk about it. To this day, a lot of people still don't know that there were actually two kinds of boat people two varieties of boat people in 1975, uh, indeed many, many Vietnamese vo- boat people, but also Cambodian people. And, and the Cambodian people are what is less known. And that's because there were fewer of us. Um, but what had happened then in 1975, of course, the war in neighboring Vietnam had spilled over into Cambodia. And uh, that led to a, a, a deeply destabilized Cambodia, uh, which allowed the communist Khmer Rouge regime to take over. My father, he worked for the uh, U.S.-backed Lonel government in Cambodia at the time. He understood and, and, and was deeply aware of the dangers of staying in Cambodia if the communists took over our country. In his mind, it had always been an if. It was never a when. He felt strongly that with the help of the U.S., there would be no way Cambodia would descend into war. There would just be no way. That was his greatest hope. And yet his greatest fear came true, which is that indeed the Khmer Rouge did take over in 1975. We happened to be very well positioned on the southern coast of Cambodia where we could escape by sea. Unfortunately, so many of my relatives, both on my mother's side and my father's side, who were inland, they're they're, uh, mostly rice farmers, my relatives, um, there was no way out. And uh, it's, it's, it's a story that, that haunts me because part of me thinks, my God, in a, in a situation of war, so much depends on fate, on just where you happen to be at a certain particular time. And if you're lucky enough, you have a way out. And if you're not, you get really snaggled into 
pretty brutal situation. Hmm. But then again, what does luck look like? In the case of your mother, luck looked like having to beg a captain of the ship not to throw her baby overboard, trying to keep that baby alive. And as you write, going down below decks um, and weeping against bags of rice. Potsada Riang's new book is Ma and Me. We'll talk more about it when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the Balance Scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking with Putsada Rang. She's a journalist and an author and the author of a new memoir. It's called Ma and Me. And we have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. And it's the story of her and her mother in particular and their family's story fleeing Cambodia, becoming American, and uh, coming to terms with and reckoning uh, what it are having a reckoning with what it means when those two parts of a complex identity uh, can collide together. Uh, put, I'm I'm thinking still 
about the sort of, I don't know, you know, we used to have sleepovers and we'd ride our bikes around town and you were talking about picking strawberries in the fields outside of Corvallis. And, and I mean, growing up there was blissful, right? It was hard. I mean, mm-hmm. your, your, your mother had to work hard in, in particular. Uh, and my, you know, my parents came under different circumstances. They weren't escaping a war by any means, but they, uh, you know, they came also from Asia with very little money. So hard work was just kind of like part of life, right? That's right. Um, was, you know, but when, when this story of how your family uh, first arrived in America, they were on the boat for like, what, a month? Yeah, just under a month. It was 23 days. 23 days. Okay. And when you were old enough to finally sort of fully understand what that meant about you and your arrival in the United States, did it make you look around at, you know, people at Crescent Valley High School, at people hanging out at Central Park in Corvallis? Like, did everything feel different after that? It did. I won't lie. There's something about this idea that once we come into a a certain knowing or understanding of our origin story, you can't unknow the details. You can't unknow the story. And I'll be honest, you know, I was burdened by that, uh, that, that different pull of identity that that part of me knew that I was from this other place that had such a such such a dark history, and yet here I was living in Corvallis. Those two worlds could not have been more completely different. And um, you know, I when I think back on on my friendships in in Corvallis, the life I had there, one of the things that um, that I can't help but um, reflect on is how much lighter, how much more levity um, you and and all my other friends in Corvallis seem to have, that there was just this lightness of being that I couldn't quite grasp. I, I couldn't get it. I didn't know how. And I think it was because inside of me, in my interior world, the pieces of that other me, the piece that that had come from Cambodia and, and, and the stories were there. So, so that was a really difficult reckoning. Mm. I mean, in the book you write that uh, people who learn about your story have asked you, like, what do you, because you were less than a year old um, right. at the time of escaping Cambodia uh, and on the brink of death again. Sorry, put, I've just known you for so long. I just, I can't believe I'm saying that, but that is your story. Um, uh, that you know, people people ask you, what do you remember of that of that flight? Essentially, mm-hmm. do you remember anything? Yeah, no. Um, of course, back then as a baby, we don't have visual memories formed. But I really believe, um, and actually, this is something that I talked to my therapist about. That um, indeed, we as human beings, that young as babies, before we ever learn to communicate our first words or feelings. Our body remembers feelings. And I can't help but think that my body for so long only knew movement mm-hmm. as, as, as sort of a, a, a standard. And that, and that constantly moving was the, the only 
peace that I had, if I was staying still, there was something very jarring in me about that. I just needed needed to be constantly moving. And I also can't help but think of this idea of the type of movement, which in in this case was on a on a ship in the middle of the sea. That certain rocking mm-hmm. back and forth, and and when I think about that, you know, our bodies are attuned. You know, when, when we're babies, our mothers rock us in their arms. Our bodies are attuned to a, a, a certain type of movement. And so all of my life I had been seeking that specific type of movement. Mm. There's the macro of the rocking of the boat. And then, you know, in the, in the stories that your, the, your mother told you about specifically that experience, there's even the micro level, right? And she, she, she tells right. you about how she had to get up occasionally. Again, this is under the beating sun, right, on the deck mm-hmm. of the boat, and, and rotate her sarong a little bit to find a clean patch in which to hold right. you, right? Um, and, and she had to keep doing that till there were no clean patches left, and then she had to wash the sarong in seawater. Or how, mm-hmm. how um, uh, now this was really deeply moving to me, how sh- she felt that you got heavy. And mm-hmm. so she would pass you to what her uh, another family member and you'd go from mm-hmm. around art from art one set of a woman's arms to another to another and back to your mother can you talk about that because how could a starving you know infant be heavy yeah you know when my mom first told me that story i i really didn't understand what she was talking about and i thought she misspoke in fact the first time i i asked her and i was interviewing her and I'd asked her back then, it was around 2012, in, this, in that particular interview with my mom, to please slow down. I, I really wanted to capture sort of a minute-by-minute minute detail of what those days at sea looked like. And when she got to the point at which she began to tell me that I had stopped moving in her sarong, I was lifeless, she began to worry that I would die when she told me that I was heavy, what I think she was saying in hindsight was that it was not the physical heaviness of holding your baby who may die in your arms. It was the emotional weight of that. Um, however, you know, I, I, I say that also knowing full well that another thing she told me was that her arms ached. Mm-hmm. And all I can think about then, you know, and I tried very hard when I was when I was writing various passages in this book to really place myself in, in my mom's shoes. And I have certainly carried a heavy backpack. I have carried heavy groceries. But it is that sort of uh, continuous 23 days on end nonstop of carrying your – you start to feel everything in your body ache, not just your arms. And she had to – passed me to her sister-in-law, my Aunt Beck, uh, who then passed me to my mother's stepmother. And as you mentioned, these women rotated me around to kind of share the burden of a baby who, who may not make it. Mm. This story is so profoundly definitive, right, in the, in the collective life of your family. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, again, early in the book, your mother tells you in, in recounting in more detail that she doesn't want to remember anymore. 
can you t- that's a conflict, right? It's tough. Um, uh, of course, as journalists, it's a, it's a fine line we walk where there's a desperate need to know the story, but also there's the other piece of me, particularly because the source in this case, my source was my mother, and I wanted to tread lightly. It, you know, these, these topics of trauma, they're so profound. They're, 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 they're so intense that we can't, we would be irresponsible to not to not tread very carefully in, into those kinds of waters. And so those moments when I knew I was re-triggering her, um, you know, there are times I just felt sick to my stomach because I thought, what am I doing? I'm asking my mother to go backwards into these very painful places of the past. For what? What is this for? What is this about? And I really had to remind myself so many times when I wanted to quit writing what this was about and why I was writing. Mm-hmm. And and it goes back to something that she also says, which is that when I'm gone put, I don't know what's going to happen to these stories that I've been telling you and your brothers and sisters. When I'm gone, the story ends. Well, Mom, actually, no, the story doesn't end. Mm. Thank goodness that it doesn't. And the rest of us can know it because you've written it in this new memoir of yours, Ma and Me. And by the way, I just want to remind folks that we have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Now put, um, other than wanting to uh, relive memories of the Crescent Crier with you from <laughs> Crescent Valley High School, go Raiders, by the way. That's uh, right. You know, and, and Mr. McPherson, who I was thought was like oh, the, the, the Ned Flanders of Crescent Valley High School. But... Oh, my absolutely. <laughs> So uh, we could spend an hour doing that. I'm not sure people would be all that interested. <laughs> but um, So there's a recurring theme in your book that it's like it reached up through the pages and it grabbed me in my heart. And it has to do with a very simple question that's even more intense in your case. Mm-hmm. Um, and you call it a question of of debt. You phrased that question to me. What is what is it that you have been struggling to try to understand? Yeah, it, it, that is really what what the framing underneath this memoir is, this this question of debt and the question of what if anything do we owe our mothers for giving us life? But there was this other added dimension that sort of complicated my question, which was not only what do we owe our mothers for giving us life, what do I owe my mother for saving my life? And it's that second piece that was really sort of troublesome to me growing up and then becoming a teenager and then becoming an adult and um, eventually getting to the place of where I am now. I had always believed that I owed my mother everything for not throwing me overboard. I've come to realize something different, that in fact, what we owe our mothers is really something so simple. It is, in fact, to just live the very best life that we can. I didn't have that understanding up until the point that I met my my wife, my partner who became my wife. And um, 
And a shift happened where I understood that, uh, you know, I had a real dilemma here. I knew that if I married a woman, it would cause great distress to my, to my parents, especially my mother. And yet, how could I say no to love? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was a difficult thing, the love for one's mother and, and debt and duty to one's mother versus the love to oneself. What did I owe myself in this story? Mm. You know, uh, debt and duty, uh, they're two different words. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, look, you're smarter than I am. So, so you know, I'm going <laughs> to I'm, I'm I'm <laughs> pursue the difference with you here in just a second. But, you know, this question of what do we owe our mothers, who not only gave us life, but as you said, in your case, saved your life mm-hmm. under the most challenging, horrific circumstances that a, a, a person can go through. There's a one potential answer to it, and it's a very American one. And I wonder what the American side of you thinks about it. The a potential American answer is you owe nothing. Right. Because yeah. you didn't have a choice. You had no mm-hmm. agency. You were an infant. These were choices and sacrifices made knowingly and willingly by your mother. And so therefore you own nothing. Mm-hmm. How does that land with you? Yeah. You know, Meghna, I think that you really uh, capture in that sentiment um, truly the, 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 the two tensions playing out or the, excuse me, the central tension playing out in the story, which is the pull between two cultures, a very individual American culture and a very uh, sort of uh, groupthink Cambodian, uh, I should say, Khmer culture. And um, those two parts of me sort of have, (laughs) they've always been at war because I grew up an American kid in Corvallis, Oregon. And so, of course, you know, I I felt very individualistic. And yet I I was raised within a family and within a, a construct, a cultural construct that said, you think of your family first before yourself. And so, therefore, to me, in that scenario, debt and duty share a border. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Keep going. Yeah. You know, this idea of, of duty, what does it mean to be a Cambodian daughter in my culture? By sheer virtue of being born female, you become um, indebted to your parents until the day you get married to a man, in which case the parents in multi-day ceremony with various rituals transfer the debt that you as a young woman owe to your parents onto your husband. And so now it's his. You owe the debt to him. And, um, you know, I always, I always struggled with that um, because I thought, you know, on the one hand, I am myself a Cambodian daughter. And, and then yet again, I, I go back to this. I, I grew up in America, and so very much uh, I, am, I am American. And I, and I couldn't at the time figure out if it was possible to be both. And, and if it was, how, how was I going to do that? The duty piece of it is that in my culture and in my family, duty is very closely linked to family and um, all of your actions Every single thing that you do must be in the best interest of the family. If, if, if you succeed, your family succeeds. If mm. you fail, your family also fails. 
And so it is your absolute duty to represent your best self in the world because that is going to be a direct reflection on your family. So they're, they're both two very, two very heavy ideas that um, I was balancing growing up. Hmm. You know, you use a word, in the, a very specific word in the book about selfhood. Mm-hmm. And I would say that selfhood or the possibility of achieving it is one of the reasons why your mother's fought so hard to save your life, mm-hmm. even though she may not have known it at the time. I think you're right, yeah. Well, when we come back, though, we're going to talk about some of the major reckonings <laughs> that happened on the way to that selfhood. Patsada Rang's new memoir is called Ma and Me. Back in a moment. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I just want to take a second here to let you know what we're working on for later this week. We're going to talk about that national shortage of baby and infant formula. More than 40% of formula is out of stock right now, according to Data Assembly. So obviously there are millions of families struggling right now to get formula for their infants. And so we want to hear from you. How hard has it been to find? Have you been able to find it? What impact? Is it having on your life? And what has fundamentally gone wrong here? Remember a while back, we did a whole series on monopolies in America. Well, guess what? What if I told you that a consolidation of business is part of the reason why babies in America right now are risking or are at risk of not getting enough to eat? Let us know what you think at 617-353-353. 0683, that's 617-353-0683. That's for later this week. Today, I'm speaking with Putsada Rang. She's a journalist who's worked in a dozen countries, reported from a dozen countries, but she's here today to talk about her life, her mother's story, her story, fleeing Cambodia in 1975, growing up in America, happened to be my hometown of Corvallis, Oregon. Putsada and I go way back here. And the story of what an immigrant child owes her mother, especially when her mother saved her life and put, tells that story in her new memoir, memoir called Ma and Me, and we have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Now, put, I, I am very, very compelled by this question of debt versus duty, and you talked about sort of the, that liminal space between the two, because mm-hmm. um, the children of immigrants can, can experience, 
you know, debt as this perhaps this burden of uh, uh, of what we owe, as you as you so perfectly put it. But I, I'll be honest, I feel great, very fortunate that I fall more on the duty side of mm. things, and that and and I and I don't sort of wear that duty as as a weight, but rather um, kind of an inspiration, motivation that uh, the choices that that my parents made allowed me to be here uh, and to to grow up here and it, and it's and it's kind of an extreme form of a desire to uh, fulfill the potential of those choices <laughs> right? Um, That's right so I completely I understand how that uh, propelled the first part of your life what what of course I cannot share is the that question of you know, your life being owed, because uh, our our stories are just different. But I wonder what you, what you think about that, about this sense that it's not one or the other. How much of of your mother's decisions of her of the stories of your family actually served as a um, you know energy, um, an engine to to propel you down the life path that that you were able to follow by virtue of having the freedoms of an American. Sure. Uh, I, I will say that was the key motivator for me to succeed. You know, of course, when when we're loaded down with with these stories um, and when I say loaded, of course, it's it's two things. It's it's, uh, you know, I describe it as a burden. But of course, the other part of me is that it's a burden. And at the same time, it's it's both a burden and a fire and a fire that lit my way through so much of my life to get to where I am today. And so much of me just was driven to do everything I possibly could to make my mother proud and to make my mother happy, both in the sense of it was my duty to do that uh, as a Khmer daughter, in as much as it was a very deep feeling I had watching her in Corvallis make sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice. My mom worked as a janitor on the night shift early on in 1976 when we got to um, a couple, uh, about a year after we arrived in Corvallis. My dad couldn't quite cut it at the time he was washing dishes at Burton's Diner in downtown. I don't know if you remember Burton's (laughs) there, mainstay uh, in um, in downtown Port, uh, excuse me, downtown Corvallis. And um, my mom did something that was... uh, I won't, I won't say taboo, that's, that's not quite the, the word, but, but she crossed a cultural boundary that wouldn't have been possible or, or wouldn't have been acceptable to her in Cambodia, which is that she went out of the home to find work. And in this case, she found work um, as, as a janitor. And, you know, she was scrubbing toilets. She was dusting and mopping. And all the while, you know, you know I remember growing up and hearing her tell me of how all the pretty things on the desks of the doctors, she she was a janitor at Oregon State University's mm-hmm. Health Center, and I, that just, that just sat with me those stories because I wanted I wanted that I wanted to to have that life where it was her daughter, it was her kid who had those pretty things on the desks. Those things, you know. 
they can be so hard to reach because part of me wanted that and yet this other part of me wanted to live a very different life. Mm-hmm. Wanted to live for me. You know, my mom pushed me, you know, really, not just myself, but my siblings too. She really wanted us to go down the route of, you know, the doctors and the business uh, and the uh, the lawyers and business people, you know, and most of my siblings did. I was kind of the outlier in the sense that I went into journalism and went in, into writing. And so I sort of knew when I made that decision at some point that there would be disappointment. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, mm-hmm, because I know what you mean. Yes. Uh, <laughs> my parents always used to say, well, at least you have your engineering degree to fall back on. Oh, um, right. <laughs> you know, whatever it takes. But listen, I, over the, in my own life over the past couple of decades, I've oftentimes had this very profound impulse to just sort of wrap my arms around my parents, uh, and now I'll include your mom in this, like, big wrapping that I want to do and say, Mm -hmm. I know this sounds, is difficult to understand, but the truest, most spectacular measure of your success, mom, dad, puts mom, is that your children had the opportunity to be. Mm-hmm. And that the freedom that you gave them may have led them down past it you don't recognize as success. And yet they are. It's an irony of the, of the <laughs> successful immigrant's life that they can't have, sometimes can't even recognize the successes that they have allowed That's their right. children to achieve. And yet they are successes. And in and I think it's taken my parents a while, but they got there. Mm-hmm. In your case, it was even more challenging, though, because it wasn't just a career choice, right? It was a, mm-hmm. who were you going to be as a human being? How were you going to live fully and openly in terms of who you wanted to love, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the question of selfhood. And, you know, originally in the early days of writing this book, um, the question that I had for myself is, do I have the courage to, to reach for my own selfhood? Am I brave enough, really, is, is kind of my internal inquiry. Uh, in the early years of, of this book took four years to write, and in those first year, year, a couple years, and... Uh, you know, that shifted a little bit to not, are you brave enough um, to, to claim your selfhood? But it was also selfhood and freedom because what I was reaching for in America was something that my mother in Cambodia couldn't have reached for, wasn't able to reach for. She couldn't claim a selfhood in Cambodia. And had I grown up in Cambodia, I myself could not have claimed a selfhood either because that agency back then and to a certain extent a little bit now even in Cambodia, although it's shifting, that agency doesn't exist for girls. Mm-hmm. And so it's this it's this very freedom that you're talking about, Magna, that I think is so powerful and, and so critical for us to have a conversation around, especially for those of us who, who are immigrants um, and uh, in my family's case, refugees. Yes. Um, we've only got this one shot. And I, I begin to realize that slowly over the years. And, you know, we've got to make the best of it. And 
whatever cost that comes, to me personally, it was worth reaching for that freedom because I, I would not have experienced happiness another way. Mm-hmm. I was trying to make my mother happy. Trying to make your mother happy because, you know, it's not... Americanness is not a simple thing, right? It's a complex state of being because it's not just about being free. At the same time, you carry, you're the caretaker of your mother's dreams. Mm -hmm. And that is a very precious responsibility. And I completely understand the fear, the worry, the concern about making decisions that break that dream. Mm Mm-hmm. It was both breaking that dream and breaking her heart. Yeah. I think that that was probably the hardest part for me to make the decision to marry a woman is that knowing I was breaking the heart of my very first love, my mother. So what happened when you told her that this is who you are and how you wanted to live your life? There were a lot of tears. There were a lot of tears and and um, a deep, deep grief. Um, when I made the decision to marry my wife, April, I really avoided going down to Oregon. I, I was living in Seattle with April at the time, and I did everything I absolutely could to procrastinate and avoid telling my parents until the absolute last minute as we were already sending out RSVPs and having people get hotels and airplane reservations and whatnot, I knew I needed and wanted to tell her in person. And so when, um, and, and by then my parents, my folks had retired and, and moved to a suburb outside of Salem in, in uh, Kaiser. And I'll be honest, I, I almost chickened out, Magna. I, mm. There was a part of me that um, was filled with a particular cowardice of, I can't do it. I cannot break her heart. And there was a moment where, you know, you're stuck. And that goes back to the crocodile and the tiger. If I were to say those words out loud, Mom, I'm getting married to a woman, it would change my life completely. If I were to not say those words out loud, and continue to live for her, that would have been its own prison in, in my mind. And so two hard choices, what are you going to do? When I told her, I, I, I'll never forget that moment. Um, she cried, and she took it personally, and she said, what did I do to raise you that you turned out so differently from your siblings? Mm. And I stood at the top of the stairs of my parents' home. And I told myself, put, go back and hold her. Tell her it's not her fault. Tell her she did everything right. Tell her it was a mistake. You're not going to get married. And the other part of me, my foot hesitated um, to take the first step down because I knew once I took that step down and out the front door, I likely would never come home again. That, that is a reality that I faced, and, and it was true for many years after I did marry April. Ne- neither choice uh, was easy to make. 
one choice would have broken my heart and the other would have broken, well, the other did break hers. And yet we, in our lives, we, we were confronted with these choices all the time. You, we have to be ready to live with the consequences and, and those can be really bitter pills to swallow indeed. Your mother too had to make hard choices. Your, the she story did. of your life begins with those hard choices. That's, that's right. How are things now? You know, <laughs> um, April and I actually can't remember now if it was a year after we got married, prob- probably within, within the year after we got married or, or at least you know, a couple of years, we were able to go visit my folks together as a married couple in the same way that my siblings and their spouses have always been invited to and welcomed in my parents' home. And my parents welcomed us. We, we sat at the, their kitchen counter and we talked for probably three or four hours. And there was a moment when I realized, maybe, maybe, maybe this is going to be okay. Maybe this story is going to work out differently. I also understood in that moment that I think that this needed to happen. I think that the, the relationship with my mother as it existed needed to end because a different one needed to be made. I'm trying to think then, so you're in the, still in the process of making that new relationship. We are, yeah. Okay. It's, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy, but you know, um, my wife, she really encouraged me all along the way. And she just kept encouraging me to, to just go, just, just be there. Put. And, you know, an, an interesting thing happened along the way. I kept showing up for the family reunions. We kept coming. And after a while, we as a gay married couple become part of the family landscape. And it's as if the fighting between my mom and I had never happened because, you know, now we've just kind of merged in with everybody else. Mm-hmm. Well, put, I have to tell you, um, never in the past 30 years did I imagine that you and I would come back together <laughs> on the radio. But I am right. so, so happy that we did. And I want to apologize to you that back when we were, you know, 15, 16, 17, that I didn't ask you Mm. about you and your mother. Um, Yeah. I should have. But Thank you, Meghna. You are making up for it more than making up for it now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Putsada Rang, her new memoir is Ma and Me, and we have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Put... Thank you so much for coming on Point. I miss you a lot and hope to oh. see you soon. Yeah, likewise, Meghna. What joy. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. 
The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts, and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.